Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are humbled by your mercies. We are grateful for Jesus. As we were just singing, we ask that you would give us more of Christ. Just allow us to understand him better. Allow us to understand our position in Christ better. To behold him this morning. To be reminded that all of the grace and blessing and mercy and treasures and the inheritance that we possess today and that we long and look forward to in the future is rooted and is based in Christ. Help us, Father, to see from this passage of Scripture that Christ is so precious that he alone qualifies to be in your kingdom, and yet because of your grace, he qualifies us and you approve of us. Help us, Lord, to ever be grateful and humble and merciful. We ask these things for your glory. Amen. Have you ever experienced the most famous of anything? For instance, have you ever been to the most famous canyon in America? The Grand Canyon. Or have you been to the most famous city in America? Which is the New York City. Maybe you've, not Sacramento, sorry to break it to you, not Sacramento. Um, maybe you've tried the most famous or the most popular food in America. According to the recent 2020 poll, it is good old pizza. I know, I thought it was burgers or something, but nevertheless, pizza. Or maybe you've had the opportunity in your life to hear in person one of the most famous preachers of our time, John MacArthur. <clears throat> this morning, as we return back to our study of Matthew, we will look at what is said by many to be the most famous sermon in the history of human civilization. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter five. Two weeks ago, we saw in Matthew four, as Pastor Jan was preaching, that Jesus began his ministry and that many people went out to hear him teach and to watch him work. Multitudes were surrounding Jesus and we're told in chapter 4, verses 24 and 25, that Jesus had mercy on them all. Our passage this morning begins a sermon that will take up the next three chapters in the Gospel of Matthew. This is the sermon that is known by many. Not only is it famous, but it has captured the attention of multiple scholars and theologians that today... Countless volumes are written on these three chapters. 
But not only that, there are actual volumes written on how to treat the volumes that were written about these three chapters. There's just so much to go through, so much material that is available. But with such fame comes a great deal of danger as well. Consider what David Turner says. Quote, the most dangerous passages of scriptures are the most familiar ones because we do not really listen to them. And this is what we're up against this morning. All of us are familiar with this text. Many of us in this room memorized at least some portions of this sermon, including the Beatitudes. As we look at our text here this morning in verses 1 through 12, Jesus answers a very simple yet crucial question for us this morning, and that is this, whom does God approve? Whom does God approve? Now, before we read these 12 verses, I I want you to look at them, if you have your Bibles open, look at verses 3 through 11. And notice that the first word in each of these verses is the word blessed. Blessed. The reason why we call this section the Beatitudes is because it is a Latin word that means blessing or blessed. And often this term blessed is translated as happy. In fact, some of the later translations that maybe some of you will have here They have the word happy are the poor, happy are those who mourn. And although happiness and and joy is assumed, to be blessed is to receive God's approval and favor. A blessed person is endorsed by God, and this divine blessing produces this great joy and genuine happiness. So absolutely, happiness and joy is part of this term, but it is being blessed. It is being approved by God himself. And notice that God is the one who initiates this blessing by being gracious to his people. And then his people respond to such blessing in thanks and praise. So they live obediently as children of God. Now, according to Jesus, who is blessed or approved by God? Well, As we read here, you will notice that it is radically different than anything you would ever expect. Anything that the Jews of his day would expect. Certainly, totally different than the Pharisees would expect. Please look at verse 1 and follow along with me as I read to verse 12. Matthew writes, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, the Sermon on the Mount in verses five or in chapters five, six, and seven is Jesus's inaugural address in which he lays out his vision of life in the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven is repeated all over this particular sermon. Now, this is not the sermon in its entirety because if you were to go home today and you would read chapters five, six, and seven, it would probably take you 10 minutes to read. So most likely his sermon lasted a lot longer. There's more material in here, but Matthew here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit records for us what he deems most essential for us to know and for it to be recorded in scripture for later generations. This sermon church is all about Jesus and why we must submit to him. And beginning with the Beatitudes, Jesus announces that only the humble and the merciful are blessed and approved by God. It is not the courageous. It's not the wise. It's not the temperate, the intelligent, the attractive that are blessed. According to Jesus, the blessed life in the kingdom of heaven is enjoyed by, as we read, the poor, the sad, the lonely, the miserable, the hungry, the mistreated. And so we come to the main point or the theme of what we're going to be talking about this morning, and that is this, the blessed life in Christ's kingdom is expressed by humility towards God and mercy towards men which inevitably will trigger opposition from the world. Now, the sermon starts in verse 3, but I want you to notice the first two verses. As crowds gather, Jesus wants to find a more secluded place for him and his disciples to have this conversation, for them to hear this sermon. Now, who are his disciples? It says he sat down. It's going to take a while. He sat down, and as a rabbi, as a teacher, he begins to teach his disciples. In verse 1, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying. The word disciple here, I think, in Matthew 5, should not be restricted to the 12, okay? Because Matthew only mentions the 12 in Matthew chapter 10. It probably refers to a bigger group made up of everybody who was attracted to Jesus and therefore followed Jesus, beginning with chapter 4, verse 24. He probably starts out with a small group. Now, we know here that he called a couple of disciples in chapter 4. He then opens up, his mouth starts teaching them. There's a bigger group. And by the time he ends this sermon, look at chapter 7. At the very end of this chapter, 
Verse 28, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Starting out with a smaller group, by the time he's done, Jesus is surrounded by large crowds who are amazed at what Jesus had to say. So this morning, I want us to consider three aspects of the citizens of this kingdom and ask a very important question. Who then qualifies to be in? Who then qualifies to be saved? And so I want us to consider first that kingdom citizens walk humbly before God. Kingdom citizens, they walk humbly before God. We want you to look at the first four of these blessings of these beatitudes. And what Jesus is saying here is that kingdom citizens, they walk humbly before God as they acknowledge their spiritual poverty, as they acknowledge their spiritual poverty. This first beatitude in verse three, blessed are the poor. It's the, it's the foundational, it's the fundamental aspect of being in the kingdom. And the rest of these blessings are built on top of it. What does it mean to be poor? What does it mean to be poor? Well, if you're like me, you've been hearing a lot about poverty lately, especially in the last couple of months. Our federal authorities are talking about raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Why? In order to lower poverty levels. Now, according to the latest federal poverty guidelines, a family of four that has an annual income of $26,500 or less is considered to be poor in America. Obviously, that's not an extraordinary amount of money for a family of four, especially if you're living in California, but it's still $26,500. For four, you're considered poor in America. Now, poor in Matthew 5.3 does not mean $26,000 poor. It means to be completely broke. Abject poverty. You have absolutely zero means for survival, so you become a beggar. That's the idea here. True poverty is a cruel thing, which people suffer tremendously. They rely on others for any kind of help, any kind of mercy. To be poor in spirit then means to acknowledge spiritual poverty. You are spiritually broke. Standing before God, you bring absolutely nothing to him, which compels God to look upon you with favor, to appreciate you, and to accept you. You and I bring our abject brokenness, hoping to be mended. You and I bring our sin, hoping to be forgiven. We bring our grief, hoping to be comforted by God. We don't come bargaining because the point is we have absolutely nothing to offer to God. And Jesus, notice here, church, says that you are blessed. You are approved because you see that you're just a beggar coming to the door of Christ's kingdom without anything to offer in order to purchase the ticket to get in. 
And so you're banging on the door and you're appealing to the king of kings, Lord, give me what is needed to enter. I need you. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, belongs to the spiritual beggars. We know that the kingdom of heaven belongs to God. And Jesus, as we studied beginning with chapter 1 of Matthew, is the king of this kingdom. But get this church, only the humble have membership in that kingdom. Only those who acknowledge their complete brokenness before the Lord. Humility and loneliness characterizes those who are saved. All the riches of the kingdom are theirs in the fullest sense because they acknowledge that they have none. And notice the tense, for theirs is, for theirs is right now. This emphasizes a blessing that is theirs today. They don't have to wait to experience future blessings. The poor in spirit possess the blessing of salvation right now. I want you to notice this in verse three. There's a present tense to this kingdom of heaven for theirs is the kingdom. And look at verse 10 for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So you have the first beatitude and the eighth beatitude with the present tense emphasizing that you are, if you're this, you are in the kingdom of heaven today. But yet, verses 4 through 9, they have the future aspect pointing forward to something that will be real in a more fuller sense later when actual kingdom of heaven comes down to earth. So I want you to see first that kingdom citizens, they walk humbly before the Lord when they acknowledge their spiritual poverty. But not only that, they walk humbly before the Lord when they grieve over sin. Look at verse 4. Closely tied to the poverty of the spirit is this next beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn. This blessing here is rooted in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, where God anoints a special person. We read this passage before, and this special person is going to, quote, bind up the brokenhearted and comfort all who mourn. And that, that um, prophecy there was related to the Jews who, who had just returned from their long exile. And they were able to build, rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, but that rebuilding process was not easy. They were mourning over the devastation that the previous generations caused because of their sin. We all know what it's like to mourn. Our family is mourning the loss of our dad. Some of you have walked down this path recently or earlier on. And since Jesus doesn't identify the direct object of our mourning, the scope of such mourning is broad. We don't merely mourn for the loss of life of our relatives, of our close ones, but we grieve over sin, which mars the world and everything in it. We are blessed when we mourn. Blessed are those who regularly mourn over sin instead of seeking self-gratification and pleasure. Blessed are those who mourn over the sins and wrongs that other people commit towards them and others in their communities. 
kingdom citizens, Jesus says, walk humbly before the Lord because they grieve over their sin. D.A. Carson says, it is not enough to acknowledge personal spiritual bankruptcy, 5.3, with a cold heart. If you know that you are a beggar before the Lord, if you know you're spiritually bankrupt, you will mourn that spiritual state. Like Paul says when he uh, wrote Romans uh, 7.24, he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? What Paul was doing is he was looking at himself, looking at all his battles, looking at his sin. And he was longing forward to that time when the kingdom of heaven will be inaugurated here, when he will be delivered from this body of sin. And he was mourning over his own sin, mourning over sins of others. We grieve over the injustices in the world. We grieve when others show indifference to the gospel. As Paul said, remember in Romans 9, he was writing and he says, you know, if you really want to know my heart, I wish that I myself was accursed for the sake of my fellow countrymen. I hate the fact that they don't believe the gospel. Why? Because of sin. Because of sin. And Jesus says, those who mourn, they will be comforted. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. And that comfort comes in the person of Jesus Christ. As we read in Isaiah 63, he is the one who will bind up the brokenhearted and comfort all who mourn. Because of our Lord Jesus Christ, this promise is partially realized today. But it will be fully realized when he returns the second time and will deal with sin completely. Kingdom citizens grieve for the world as it is now, but also live with this forward-looking expectation that his kingdom will come and we will be forever comforted. Sin will be done away with. Our loved ones will no longer die we will not have shattered relationships due to sin any longer. Today, we grieve. And that grief is an indication of your humility before God, understanding that you're in a broken state. And that you and I are suffering the consequences of sin. As we walk humbly before God, we also Refuse to selfishly advance ourselves. Kingdom citizens, Jesus says, refuse to advance themselves. Now, blessed are the gentle, he says in verse 5. A beatitude that initially seems out of place here, right? But it follows these two and it is very appropriate. If you understand your spiritual bankruptcy and your need for God, you will be Gentle, blessed are the gentle. Some of your translations read meek, perhaps. We discussed this meaning of meek when we studied Colossians chapter 3, where Paul calls us to put on gentleness, to put on meekness. And if you remember, gentleness does not mean weakness or timidity. Jesus refers to himself Later on, hopefully we'll get there, Matthew 11, 21, 29, as being gentle in heart. 
being gentle in heart. Now, he models this gentleness. Listen, if he is gentle in heart, then he models this gentleness at his trial before Pilate when he refuses to defend himself. Yet on numerous occasions, this meek Jesus, this gentle Jesus, overturns tables. He strongly rebukes the Pharisees. He exercises power and authority and dominion over Satan and his demons. Same meek and gentle Jesus. We can say then that Jesus, being gentle, did not insist on his own rights, but displays genuine humility. To be meek is not to assert yourself, right? Jesus was not ambitious for personal enrichment. He relied on power of God to accomplish the will of God in his life. And so he says here, those who are in my kingdom will be gentle. They will be gentle. Those who understand and feel their need for God then will not be bold, will not be brash and self-assertive. Isn't it the very opposite of what the world teaches us and our children today? Today we live in the time when we're being sold the biggest lies. We are told that you have to express yourself. You have to believe in yourself. You have to realize the innate power within you. You have to be self-confident. You have to be self-reliant. You have to be self-assured. In other words, you have to be like God to make it in this world. Because this is the only way to make it, right? Wrong. Jesus says the gentle will inherit the earth. The gentle will inherit the earth. Jesus is looking forward to a time of the inauguration of his earthly kingdom. In the end, he says, the gentle and meek, not the self-reliant who will take place in God's kingdom. Notice that they shall inherit, inherit, which means that God gives this privilege to them as a gift. This inheritance comes as a gift, a gift that they could never win by themselves. The gift that they could never earn because it is an inheritance. Blessed are the bankrupt. Blessed are those who weep and mourn over sin. Blessed are those who do not self-assert themselves in order to get ahead, but trust the Lord who will ultimately bless them with greatest inheritance. And finally, we walk humbly before the Lord, verse 6, when we focus on righteousness, when we focus on righteousness. This is the characteristic of the one who is in God's kingdom. This is the characteristic of the one who is saved. So church, let us check ourselves. Just like poverty and the hunger and thirst, they, they mean less to us today than to the third world Christians or to the Christians of Jesus's day. You know, we eat when we're hungry, we drink when we're thirsty. We shop in grocery stores that are stacked with food. We go to the restaurant and order a meal one minute, and the next, we get a nice, hot meal. We never go hungry. We never go thirsty. Someone rightly observed saying, when someone asks you if you're hungry, 
they mean only, are you sufficiently hungry to eat now if I put food on the table? Are you going to get at least some of it or are you just going to leave it all right there? Are you sufficiently hungry to just enjoy some of what I'm about to offer you? That is our definition of hungry. Jesus refers to a different kind of hunger here, a real hunger. Perhaps even remembering, as I was thinking about this, Jesus there on the mountain, and he's teaching his disciples, and they're gathered there, and he says, blessed are those who hunger. And you could probably think of Jesus being in the wilderness in the past chapter, experiencing his hunger after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And this is the kind of hunger, this intense desire that Jesus here points to. And he's making one simple point here. A hungry person can only think of one thing. That is food. A thirsty person can only think of one thing. Water. Hunger and thirst make you focused. One thing alone. And what is that one thing? Righteousness. Righteousness, he says. Blessed are those who are totally focused on righteousness. Now, remember, as I mentioned before, that Matthew's use of righteousness is different than Paul's use of righteousness in his epistles. It is not the imputed righteousness, but the personal righteousness. You long to be holy. You long to be approved by God Citizens of the kingdom, they, ha- they hunger and thirst for personal holiness. But they not only crave to be holy, but also to live in a world where people live in right relationships with one another. Where it's not about only personal holiness, but everything is holy. Everything is whole. Everything is right where justice is carried out. Blessed are those who hunger for that time. Blessed are those who pursue these things. And church, only those who are presently in the kingdom, who have been transformed from within, who have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, can have such a craving. Unbelievers don't crave for this thing. This is foreign to them. Those who have tasted of the kindness of our Lord and Savior, those who have been transformed from within and made new can long for that. This is why they're blessed. This is why they're approved by God. And the promise to them is you will get what you desire. You will, your cravings will be satisfied. They will be satisfied. Their dreams will come true. They will be filled. Peter in 2 Peter 3.13 says, but according to his promise, We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Oh, that it would be a great time. Some of us suffer right now because of lack of righteousness, both our own righteousness, our own holiness, unrighteousness against us. The world is messed up. We know that. And here... Jesus says that those who are in the kingdom, they long for a world where righteousness dwells and we will get there. The blessed life in Christ's kingdom is expressed by humility towards God as we acknowledge our destitute and bankruptcy, as we grieve over sin, as we refuse to be self-assertive and as we focus on righteousness. 
Now, the first four Beatitudes, as one scholar calls them, they are the Beatitudes of need. The next three are the Beatitudes of action. The first four Beatitudes, they express our humble dependence. And then the next is the outworking of that dependence towards men, towards one another. And so I want you to see the second aspect of citizenship, and that is that kingdom citizens, they act mercifully towards men. Not only do they walk humbly before God, but they walk mercifully towards men. And three things Jesus highlights here in verse seven, blessed are the merciful. They walk mercifully and act mercifully towards men and that they show mercy. This term here, it it embraces both forgiveness for the guilty and compassion for the suffering. By, By God's grace, we've spent a lot of time in the last two weeks talking about mercy and talking about compassion. So this is good. It must be the Lord knows what we need. And that's why he's sending preachers to remind us that Christians are to be merciful and are to be compassionate. This adjective here, merciful, is found only one other time in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 2.17 being attributed to Christ himself, where it says that Jesus is our merciful high priest. It places the emphasis here on the bent to show mercy. This is your inclination. This is mostly who you are. This is your disposition as opposed to just an occasional impulse to be merciful. In other words, we as Christians sometimes behave in such a way that, you know, uh, if someone asks us, hey, are are you merciful? We can go back and we can recount, you know, well, yeah, I showed mercy there and and here. And then three months ago, I had this opportunity to do that. What what Jesus is talking about here is a bent. It's a characteristic that you are merciful because the mercy of Christ has been shown to you. Blessed are those who remain merciful. Merciful, And only those who show mercy can expect God to be merciful to them because Jesus says here, if you're merciful, you shall receive mercy. Now in this gospel, Jesus emphasizes this truth over and over again. Mercy receiving is dependent on mercy given. Mercy receiving is dependent on mercy giving. Look what he says in, in this Um, sermon here in chapter 6, verse 12. He says, and forgive us, he's teaching disciples how to pray and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Be merciful to us as we're merciful to our debtors. In in 9.13 and 12.7, Jesus quotes Hosea 6.6, which call for mercy rather than sacrifice. In chapter 18, verse 21 through 35, Jesus gives a parable of the unforgiven servants and condemns the person who fails the mercy test. And he concludes in verse 35. He says, my heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you do not forgive his brother from your heart. How are we to reconcile this? Will God only forgive us when we forgive and show mercy to others? Church, those who are inclined to give mercy have received mercy. Those who are inclined to give mercy have received mercy. God himself, we're told in numerous passages in the New Testament, jump-started this mercy cycle by loving us while we were yet sinners, Romans 5 says. Showing mercy to us in Christ. 
And now as citizens of God's kingdom, we're instructed to let that mercy flow through us to others. And in the end, we will receive mercy on the last day. Brothers and sisters, we have to ask ourselves this question. If we fail to forgive others and if we fail to be merciful to those who are sitting next to you here and to those who are desperate and wicked outside, have we truly understood? Have we truly contemplated and experienced the mercy of God? Because that mercy of God will make us merciful, will make us more forgiven, will make us compassionate. And so if you are struggling there, and you are struggling there, and I am struggling there, the solution is to behold the merciful God, is to remind yourself how God in Christ is so merciful to you. But we act mercifully towards men, not only in that we show mercy, but that we possess a pure heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You know, in Psalm 24, David asked this question, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, and who may stay in his holy place? And he answers it in the next verse, and he says, He who has, a clean, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. And Jesus most likely adapts this passage to describe the, the blessing of the one who resides in his kingdom. What does it mean to be pure? Well, purity means that you're not defiled by evil, but also that you are not mixed with any foreign substance. One who is pure in heart is completely devoted to God. He has a single-minded heart. He is focused on pleasing the Lord. Later on in chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus will say, you cannot serve God in mammoth. You can't possibly express full devotion in this position when you're straddling the fence and you're wondering, am I going to submit to this master or am I going to submit to this master? Jesus says, blessed are those who are pure in heart. Pure in heart are approved by God, those who are single-minded and pursuing his kingdom and his righteousness, he will say later on in this chapter 633, will be pure and as a result will see God. They will see God. That's the promise. John later on writes in 1 John chapter 3, he says, we will see him just as he is. Christians, are we so focused on Christ's kingdom that we're looking forward to seeing God? Being with God? Is that something that, that is on, on our mind, on your mind? I like what C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Problem of Pain. He says, we are afraid that heaven is a bribe and that we make it our goal and that if, and that we make it our goal, we shall no longer be disinterested. It is not so. Heaven offers nothing that a mercenary soul can desire. It is safe to tell the pure in heart that they shall see God for only the pure in heart want to. You're not going to entice someone who doesn't have devotion to the Lord that they will see God in heaven. But you're going to entice a believer 
who's solely focused on pleasing the Lord, that you will see God just remain there. And finally, we get to verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We act mercifully as we make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. Now, peace, peace is not a mere absence of strife, but presence of harmony and love. Notice that Jesus' concern here is not with the peaceful. He doesn't say, blessed are the peaceful. Blessed are those who make peace, which is different. Kingdom citizens don't just avoid confrontations, but they pursue peacemaking. When they see a confrontation, when they see something bubbling, as those who belong to the kingdom of Christ, we pursue that in order to what? Bring peace, bring reconciliation. What, what peacemaking does Jesus have in mind here? Well, like Jesus, who is the supreme peacemaker, remember he is called the prince of peace, who made peace between God and man. Our peacemaking will include the proclamation of the same gospel that he is proclaiming right here. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it will extend to all kinds of reconciliations. Christians must be known as peacemakers, one who, who have solution that is peace of Christ rather than known as being agitators. This is what we are called to be. And those who are, Jesus says, they will be called sons of God. I mean, this is glorious praise. This is glorious praise. We, when we pursue peace, when we make peace, we share God's character for he is the ultimate peacemaker. You will be dubbed son of God, child of God. Why? Because you look more like Jesus. When you bring in peace, when you bring in reconciliation rather than remaining in strife. So the blessed life in Christ's kingdom is expressed not only in humility towards God, but also in, in mercy towards men. What is the common thread in all of these beatitudes so far? Common thread is self-denial. This is so contrary to the way each of us is wired because we're wired sinfully. Who's qualified for such things? Which one in this audience can, can raise their hand and, and admit that these beatitudes are perfectly reflected in my life? Church, those who are in God's kingdom are aware of one thing. And this is the goal of why Jesus began this way. Is he wants you and I to understand that we can't qualify it on our own. We don't belong. These beatitudes are not qualifications to get in. They describe a reality of those who have been qualified and approved by God because they sought help from someone else. They understood their poverty. That, in fact, is the point of the entire sermon. You can't get into the kingdom. When Jesus began to preach, there were multiple people who thought that by their mere descent, bloodline, by their works, by who they were, by what they knew, they were able to just flow right into the kingdom. And Jesus said, time out, this 
is how you're supposed to look. And none of you look this way. You got to be changed. You got to be transformed. And only I can do that for you. Only Jesus can do that. And when he does that, those who walk humbly before the Lord and act mercifully towards others, notice in verses 10 through 12, they trigger opposition from the outsiders, which brings us to the third point. Kingdom citizens, they trigger opposition from the outsiders. Opposition, brothers and sisters, is a normal mark of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Opposition for the Christian is as normal as hungering and thirsting for righteousness and as being merciful because you've received mercy. This was such an important message to the original readers, Matthew's original readers. I mean, early Christians, they were persecuted for all kinds of reasons. Barclay writes that Jews, Saul among them, persecuted Christians as heretics. Jews and Romans accused Christians of immoral practices. The words of the Last Supper, this is my body, this is my blood, led to charges of cannibalism. The love feast or agape feast and the kiss of peace led to charges of sexual immorality. Apocalyptic literature led to charges of sedition. Christian refusal to proclaim Caesar is Lord led to charges of treason. This gospel right here, this sermon helped these Christians put the things in perspective. Blessed are you, Jesus says, when you are being reviled and persecuted. Why? Look at this, verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted, not just generally, but for the sake of righteousness. For the sake of righteousness. And then the synonym for that is in verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Why? Because of me. For the sake of righteousness and because of me. The righteousness that is in view here arises out of your discipleship with Jesus. It's because of him. You begin to look more and more like Jesus, which the world hates. You begin to exhibit the proper conduct before the Lord. So in reading this final beatitude here in verse 10, we ought to ask ourselves, do we trigger opposition because we look more like Jesus or because of something else? One commentator said the picture here in verses 10 through 12 is not of a holier than thou goody goody, but of a believer stamped with integrity, integrity in commerce, speech, personal transactions, filing income tax forms, providing value for money, relationships with the opposite sex, integrity everywhere and at all times. The world usually prefers a veneer of integrity or integrity in selected areas. When it meets the real thing, it reacts with revulsion. 
The world prefers integrity, but only slight, superficial, external. What Jesus is talking about here is that if you are poor, mourn, if you're gentle, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, if you show mercy, if you have focus to please the Lord and assist and serve others, if you pursue peace, you will be opposed by the world. It's a guarantee. You will be opposed. And then look at this, verse 11. He turns to the people. He turns to his disciple and he, he addresses them directly and says, you are blessed. If this is true of you, brothers and sisters, you are blessed. Rejoice and be glad. This word glad means literally dance and leap for joy. This is pretty crazy. This is pretty radical. This is totally anti what we're trained here having this sinful worldview. Jesus says leap for joy when you're being persecuted, when you're being insulted and said all kinds of evil against you. Because of me, leap for joy. Your great reward is coming. It's a heavenly reward. It refers to spiritual reward that the faithful will receive because of their discipleship to Jesus. Heavenly reward. Rejoice because you're included also. Look at this in verse 12. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice and leap for joy because you stand in line of faithful prophets who suffered in the same way for the Lord. And that's a great privilege, church, to suffer the same way. If they persecuted Jesus, they will no doubt persecute and oppose his followers. And that is an indication, notice. This opposition is an indication that, that you and I begin to look like Jesus. That's a great comfort. It is not to deter us from looking more like Jesus because this is what we do. Well, I said something from scripture to, to my neighbor and now they hate me. And, and they're, they're demonstrating their hatred by doing some, some weird things. And, and so, so I must stop doing what I'm doing. Must stop lo loving them. Must stop being like Christ to them. But Jesus says, this is a badge of honor. It's a badge of honor. Wear it. Why? Because in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. They didn't survive. Not many prophets survived. And yet great is their reward in heaven. Church, can you think of anyone who you know of who has perfectly embodied these beatitudes? True to some extent, every Christian, every kingdom citizen is filled with the spirit and must embody them. That is why we come to this text and we check ourselves and we test ourselves against these truths. But it's only to the extent, right? Listen, only Jesus, the king of the kingdom, embodies each and every one of these beatitudes perfectly. He was poor in spirit, not due to sin, but in daily reliance on the spirit for all things, that is why he prayed. That is why he fully submitted to the will of his father. Jesus mourned over sin, not over his own sin, but over the sin of people and what the sin caused in the world. He wept over Jerusalem as they rejected the gospel. He wept at the side of Lazarus' tomb 
seeing the damage that our sin caused. Jesus was the meekest of them all, offering his gentle yoke to those who would call him Lord. He had a passion for righteousness, overthrowing tables of money exchangers and at the same time receiving sinners and dining with them. He showed mercy by healing and feeding and teaching the multitude. He forgave their sins. He had a pure heart of undivided focus and attention to his father's will. He's the ultimate peacemaker, having brought peace through the blood of his cross, as we read in Ephesians. And who else but Jesus suffered for the sake of righteousness? Nobody. J.P. Meyer says, in the end, the Beatitudes are the autobiography of Jesus. A perfect self-portrait by the master. Happy are those who discover on the way, like a treasure hidden in the field, the Christology hidden in the Beatitudes. Church, the blessing of God is not found in ways of the world, but only in Jesus Christ. As those who believe in the Lord, we are invited again and again to experience God's blessing in this deep joy. Listen, we are approved by God in Jesus Christ because of Christ. Being approved then, these attitudes and, and these, these beatitudes, they should stir in us a greater desire to continue to walk in humility before the Lord. To check ourselves are we acting in mercy towards men? And are we being intimidated or not by this opposition? I pray that God would give all of us grace to continue such lives who are approved by God, not on our own merits, but only on merits of Jesus. Father, we thank you for such reminder Oh, stir in us greater appreciation for Christ and give us greater hunger for his righteousness and for us to be righteous in our own lives, for us to show mercy, for us to be compassionate. And when the world hates us, make sure the world hates us for the right reason, that we look more and more like Jesus. Help us this week, I pray, to consider these things for your glory. Amen.